Welcome, welcome, welcome into a Seminarian and Friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, Scripture, the Church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, the Seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. Today's question came from a good friend of mine in my Bible study, and it's a good study for any Christian to have a working knowledge of. He asked how the Christian scripture called the Bible, which is the inerrant, infallible, inspired, and sufficient word of God, came to be what we have today. Now, the scope of this question is too broad for one podcast, for it is indeed the subject of many studies and books. But I want to give a 30,000-foot view of how God's revelation was canonized. So when I mean canonized, I mean the standardization of what is recognized as authoritative. Now, that doesn't mean that being in the canon makes it authoritative. Rather, the canon simply recognizes the authority. Being canonized does not grant authority. It is in the canon because it is authoritative and it bears marks of authority. It's self-attested within the words and then the Holy Spirit who wrote the words of scripture through the inspired authors also testifies that it is authoritative and through the process of canonizing both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Holy Spirit guided the whole thing so that we have what we have today as the 66 books of scripture. So let's start at a very good place, the beginning, the Old Testament. Now, when we look to Jesus, we we see that the Old Testament was pretty much solidified and agreed upon by the time he was walking on earth in the early first century. Now, there was still a little bit of disagreement, uh, but for the most part, what Jesus had was what people had decided was the canon or recognized as the canon, and it's what we have today as the Old Testament. It isn't in the same order, so we have one order, and I'll get to it in a second. Uh, Jesus had a different order, and the reason for that is because English Bibles use the Greek canon order of the Old Testament, which was different from Jesus's. So when, when they went in and translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek to create what's called the Septuagint, it's written sometimes in the Roman numeral 70, which is uh, LXX. It's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When they did that, they kind of reordered some things, including making Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles into two books each. When it was written in Hebrew, Hebrew doesn't use vowels in the actual wording. So, so the, the letters that you see are all consonants, and then the vowel pronunciations are marked above and below the consonants in the line, so it doesn't take up all that much space. Well, Greek doesn't do that. They do include 
the vowels with the consonants as they write it out. So these books, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, were too large with the addition of the vowels to fit on one scroll. So instead they broke them into two. So that's why we have first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. So Jesus had all of these books and they were generally considered authoritative. And then they were translated into Greek and the English Bibles we have today are in the order of the Greek Septuagint. Now there are other orders too from historians that don't matter nearly as much. So I'm not going to bog you down with with those. Uh, and if you are curious about the order that, that Jesus had his Old Testament in or his Hebrew Bible in, you can look those up. My Old Testament professor argued that that is a more theologically rich way to read the scripture canonically. So how did the people decide what books made it in and what books didn't? Well, they were there. And what I mean by that is if you follow the storyline of Israel from creation uh, and then from when Abraham was called to be the patriarch and then through Joseph and then into Moses and all of that time, there were eyewitnesses to God speaking to his people and then there were eyewitnesses to the author writing these words down. So Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or the law, the Torah. Those, are, those all are the first five books of the Bible. So people saw the events that happened. People experienced these events that were taking place and were around when Moses was recording them. And the same can be true can be said and is true about the rest of canon. You know, these the people of God had an understanding that these texts texts were revealed to them in their lifetime with their own eyes and ears hearing the the theophanies, the appearances and manifestations of God like on Mount Sinai or or the Red Sea. So people saw these things and recognized that they happened and, and were aware that, that they were written. So then when they were written down, they like understood that these were authoritative. And then in, in later generations, because their family members had trusted them, they continued to trust and were around for the subsequent texts that were written, like the prophets or the Psalms or whatever. So there wasn't a long process of here are all these books in the world, let's figure out which ones uh, are authoritative because we believe Yahweh spoke. No, they, they witnessed the revelation and knew without a doubt that these were the ones. There's a, a book called The Old Testament Canon in the Old Testament Church written by R.A. Vashels, and he said this, and I think it's a great way to summarize what I just said. He wrote, The substance of the matter is that writings with the force of canonical authority are based on eyewitness testimony of God's approval of the writer of Scripture 
by a sizable number in their community. This kind of testimony is open and sufficient. They saw, they heard. An awesome theophany, a manifestation of God's presence, permitted that no question be entertained that God had not spoken. Here is where the rationale for canonicity resides, and it will be shown that the Old Testament does not shift from this position. Canonicity is rooted in a measurable, visual, audible demonstration of God's approval upon an author of scripture to his contemporaries. And if you want to go uh, and read more, that was quoted in a book called The World and the Word, which has three editors named Eugene H. Merrill, Mark F. Rooker, and Michael A. Grisanti. This was one of the textbooks for my Old Testament class, and the book that they quoted, like I said, is the Old Testament canon in the Old Testament church written by R.A. Vashultz. So the Old Testament was written through the storyline of Israel, and they didn't question it because they saw that it was written and they knew its authoritative impact on their lives. Some other clues uh, that give the reader understanding that these are authoritative and the authors and readers, when they were written, understood that they were authoritative include introductory or concluding statements around whatever the revelation is. So you see these a lot in the prophetic literature, especially. You'll say, they'll say in the course of the book, thus says Yahweh, or this is the word of Yahweh. And so that, that clues people to, to, say, to think, oh, this is directly from God through the prophet. They also tested some of these prophecies because, of course, you know, people were, were false prophets in these days and, and tried to speak these things to people that were wrong as if they were from God. People would, false prophets would speak to kings and say, thus says Yahweh, when Yahweh didn't even speak. And it's one of the sins that he talks about frequently in the prophetic literature for why the exile happened later. But one of the tests that God commanded them to use in Deuteronomy for these prophets was if the prophecy came true. So some of these prophecies were of the nature that they could wait and see a short period of time if that prophecy came true. If it didn't, then they knew it wasn't from God. If it did come true, then they knew that it was from God. Now, not every prophecy is of that nature, and so there were some prophecies that took centuries and generations to come to fulfillment, like the prophecies about Christ's coming. But, rest assured, those still came true because they were authoritative. Some other ways that people characterize and and point to as reasons the Old Testament canon is authoritative. Most, not all, most of the Old Testament books are alluded to at least once in the New Testament. So Jesus quotes a lot from Isaiah and the Psalms, or Paul quotes a lot from the Psalms and from 
Genesis and Deuteronomy and most of the Old Testament books are alluded to in the New Testament, which means the New Testament authors recognized and upheld the authority of those scriptures. Now, there are a few Old Testament books that don't have a direct allusion in the New Testament, but are still regarded as authoritative. And on the flip side, Paul did quote a couple things from the secular world that aren't authoritative for Christians. Like in Acts 17, he talks about a Greek poem. In no ways was he trying to say that their poetry was authoritative from God. He was trying to contextualize the gospel to this society that didn't recognize or read or understand the Hebrew text, so he wanted to show that God's imprint is on all of creation because he created it. So it's not the most hard and fast criteria to use for proving that the Old Testament is authoritative, but it is one of them. Another one is in the early 20th century, archaeologists found what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they found this cave around the Dead Sea with a bunch of documents. And so when they went in and, and studied these documents, they found that there were copies of Old and New Testament books that were earlier copies of the texts than they had on record. Most of these, the Old Testament books, were included in those. So again, not in itself reason to conclude that anything found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is authoritative and whatever is not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is not, but it helped historians and archaeologists solidify the arguments that had been made for centuries in the past. And then you look at Christian historians, take Jerome or Josephus, for example, and they each have their own writings about these are the books that the Jews counted as authoritative. And so all of this together gives a pretty convincing look at what was considered and recognized, not just considered, but recognized as God's word in the time of the Jews. Now, there, there are a couple wrenches that, that I'm going to throw in. I mentioned one of them earlier, the Septuagint. So when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek to create the Septuagint, they also, also included additional books. Now, Catholics consider these books canonical, but Protestants do not, and they're called the Apocrypha, which comes from the Greek secret. Uh, they're also called the Deuterocanonical books, the second canon, the second standard. So these are books like Sirach and Tobit and additions to Esther 
some of these books that were written during the intertestamental period. After the exile, they rebuilt the second temple, or they built the second temple until Jesus, about 400 years, 500 years uh, between the time of building the temple and Jesus' coming. So the first hundred years or so, Israel's still receiving prophecy. That's where Ezra and Nehemiah take place. And those are considered authoritative, but, but then there's this period of 400 years that's considered the, the 400 years of silence, where prophecy halts. And it was, it was predicted in Amos, uh, God said that there would be a famine in the land, not of water or food, but of the word from Yahweh. And so that happened in this 400 year period where God wasn't speaking. But during this time, there were Jewish writings. I mentioned some of them. Uh, you can you can find them in a, in a list of apocryphal books. Some Bibles have them listed. So these were not written in Hebrew, which is a big red flag of not being authoritative. They were written in Greek during this time when there was silence. And so some sectors of, of the Christian faith believe they're canonical and base their some doctrine off of it, which is erroneous because they're not authoritative. Again, if you want to look more in depth, there's, there's a bevy of information about those. What's most important to know is that the majority of Jews during that time when these books were written didn't themselves recognize them as authoritative. Helpful and maybe accurate representations of what life was like in exile and in post-exile life, but they weren't even considered by most Jews in that day to be authoritative. And so you fast forward to Jesus's time, and like I said earlier at the beginning of the podcast, what Jesus would have read was Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, the same books, some of them were divided differently. Like we, we cut up the minor prophets into 12 books, whereas some canonists consider them just one book, the book of the 12. But the same books in different orders, that's what Jesus had as his Bible, and that's what's preserved today. So there's not, a, there's not much controversy about books not being included in the, the Old Testament canon, although there is some controversy about what to do with these apocryphal books. But given that, that the, most of the Jews during that day and Jesus didn't consider them authoritative, they're not authoritative. And if you read them, they just don't carry the same weight like we i talked earlier about the the self attestation of scripture where you read it and like it's it's just different like it, it reads like it's from the mouth of god because it is that's not how the apocrypha comes across okay so now we fast forward to the new testament and the new testament canonization came about differently. The nature of these books was that Jesus came onto the scene, he lived, he died, he rose again, 
And after his ascension, his disciples received the commission to go and tell the world. And so that's when they recorded these letters and, and the Gospels because they wanted a written account of what had happened. In fact, if you read the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts, because Luke wrote both of them as a two-part letter, he even says that his task in writing those books was to create an orderly account. So these were written to people to tell them about the events that had happened surrounding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so each of the four Gospels, you have a different audience, and they were written down and copied so that people could have them in, and read them. And then the, you get to the epistles, and these were, these were letters that Paul and others wrote to people to teach them. So they weren't, you know, you, you look back to the Old Testament canonization, and these books were attested with theophanies, not so much with the New Testament books. So people had to get together and decide, again, governed by the Holy Spirit, who wrote them, what of these is going to make the canon when, when it's all finished, so that people, like we have today, have a complete document of the revelation from God. And so as they were trying to sift through the available books, because also at this time, there were other people who were writing books based on their own ideas of what had happened. So they wanted to organize a Bible with what was truly the word of God. So as they were deciding which ones were going to make the canon and which ones weren't. They, they came with three criteria. They had to be apostolic. And what that means is that they had to have been written by an apostle himself or someone who was like an apostle. Like, Jesus' brother Jude was not an apostle, but he was Jesus' brother. So he saw everything. He was an eyewitness he was a relevant figure in the church at the time. Paul was not one of the 12 disciples during Jesus' mission and, and ministry, but he saw the risen Jesus, which, is, which, which started and instigated his, his conversion, and you can read that story in Acts. So he saw the risen Jesus, and then he was specifically called and gifted with writing these texts authoritatively. So they had to be apostolic, written by an apostle or a similar apostolic figure. So you look at, you look at all of the, the authors of these books and they, they meet that criteria. The 27 books of the New Testament all meet that apostolic criteria. The second one was the widespread use and universal applicability of the letters and the and the texts and so you know when let's say when Paul wrote 
letters, he would send it to a church. So if, if that letter started making its way through a lot of churches and what he wrote in it applied to a lot of different people, then the it was more canonical than, say, if he wrote a letter to someone else that didn't make its way to as many churches. There's, for example, there's some speculation. Well, we know that 1 Corinthians was not the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians, he references his previous letter. What we don't know is what that first letter says. But what we can conclude from that is that the letter he wrote was apostolic, sure, but it probably didn't have the widespread... Re it wasn't read as widespreadly as First and Second Corinthians and his other letters, and or it just wasn't nearly as universally applicable as his other letters. So it had to be apostolic, had to be widespread and universally applicable. And then third, it had to be orthodox, which makes a lot of sense. It had to conform to reality. It had to be true. It had to maintain the orthodox, the right beliefs and teachings of the faith that was handed down from the apostles uh, on down, as Jude talks about. So there were a lot of writings in that time that were not orthodox. In fact, there were a lot of heresies being pushed around during that time. There was Gnosticism, which was this false religion that kind of popped up in late 1st century, early 2nd century, that talked about this secret knowledge that an elite group had that others didn't. Gnosticism coming from the Greek uh, gnosko, which means to know. So, yeah, this, this group of people thought they had an elevated and elite amount of knowledge into the heavenly realms or into Jesus' identity. And so they started passing along false sayings from Jesus and writing them down and, and teaching all these things. Well, these started to get some momentum and they didn't make the canon because they weren't considered or recognized as orthodox because they contradicted what was already recognized as orthodox and an orthodox you know they they took orthodoxy from the old testament scriptures that they knew were authoritative plus jesus's words plus the words of the apostles plus the other letters and epistles that had been circulating at that time so they had a standard already by which to measure orthodoxy including the Holy Spirit living in them. Again, he is the most important element of scripture's writing and canonization. So again, apostolic, widespread use and universal applicability, and third, orthodox. So I mentioned some of these heresies like Gnosticism. There was also one where a guy started teaching that Jesus and the God of the Old Testament were not only different gods, but diametrically opposed. 
because this guy read the Old Testament and he interpreted the Old Testament scriptures as describing a God of wrath. And then he saw what was being preached about Jesus and saw only a God of love and mercy and saw and this this one heretic couldn't see that they were the same God. But the church got together and they decided that the guy who thought of this heresy was in fact a heretic and they condemned him as a heretic. So his writings were not included in the canon because they didn't fit orthodoxy, but that heresy and other heresies sparked these conversations to determine, okay, these books are canon and these books are not. And then again, just like the Old Testament, there were historians in the first, second, third, fourth centuries that also recorded what was considered canon in that time. Tertullian, Origen, and Athanasius are three individual historians who ha whose writings talk about these. And then you can look at church history and, and see some of the councils where they just again, they didn't decide as if they were the ones calling the shots. No, through prayer, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they recognized together as a body based on the criteria, based on the understanding of the Jews and then the teachings of the apostles, what counted. And you can kind of follow those councils throughout church history and there's a theme of councils. Uh, I think about in the fourth century, there was the Nicene Creed, which birthed the Nicene Creed, which is what what a significant portion of the church goes to still today as our summary of Trinitarian theology. And then later in the next century, in the fourth century, there was the Chalcedonian Council, which birthed the definition of Chalcedon, which explained the Trinitarian theology from the Nicene Creed in terms of Christology to decide or to articulate what is true about the person of Jesus. So all of these things, I, I got a little bit off track, so I'm sorry if that distracted you, um, but my point is that all of these were kind of birthed out of the need to establish and articulate orthodoxy in the face of heresies that were being sprung up. That is a lot of information, I'm sure. So if you need to go back and study it further and hit some of the points that I did not cover, because again, this is a wide topic, don't be afraid uh, to go study this on your own. I mentioned these books earlier, and I'll mention them right now again. The, the two sources that I used right now to kind of put this together are the Introduction to Biblical Interpretation by William Klein et al., and The World and the Word by Eugene H. Merrill et al. Those were, one of them was the textbook I used in my hermeneutics class this past year. One of them was a textbook we used in my Old Testament class from this past year. They go 
in further depth about how each of the Old and New Testament canons were created, why the apocryphal books of the Old Testament were not included in the canon, and why some of the other New Testament books that were written around this time were also not included. So feel free to check those out if you want more information. There are other books as well that talk about those. Um, I don't have them in my library, so I can't recommend them to you, but they're out there, so check them out yourselves. If that's not enough for you, uh, primary documents from the historians that I mentioned are also available for purchase. They're available online. Libraries have them. Uh, so you can look at the works of Josephus, the works of Origen, the works of Jerome, the works of Tertullian, Athanasius. There were a lot of church fathers during the first, second, third centuries who wrote a lot of phenomenal things that I haven't read nearly as much as I want to yet, um, but feel free to check those out as well. We can trust our scriptures because they were written by God and they were canonized by God through the agency of humanity. It's a concept that blows our mind, um, but it's true and we believe it and trust it by faith. I hope this was helpful and I hope that you trust that what you read in scriptures is authoritative and true and glorious. Soli Deo Gloria. <laughs>